Hello and welcome to The Edition. Each week we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, how are the Taliban now going to run Afghanistan? Plus, should women worry about the COVID vaccine's effect on their menstrual cycle? And finally, what are the joys of retiring from the country to London? First up, in this week's Spectator, we dedicate a large section of the magazine to the situation unfolding in Afghanistan, stretching over four features. I'm joined now by two of the authors of them, Paul Wood, the journalist, and our own deputy editor, Freddie Gray. Paul, what's your assessment of what we know so far about the Taliban's new leadership? Well, this is not your father's Taliban. In one way, they are tougher and meaner, as Ryan Crocker, the former US ambassador, said as a result of many long years of combat with American and Afghan forces. But in another way, they have been surprisingly sophisticated and remarkably conciliatory. Uh, They have waged a masterful diplomatic campaign, as I wrote in the piece over the past year or two, to get the US off the battlefield, to distract the Afghan government with meaningless talks, and all the time to make progress on the ground. They have managed to reassure their enemies. In each province, uh, you've seen people simply switching sides as the result of deals with the Taliban. Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, for instance, a warlord that Ashraf Ghani, the now-fled president, called upon to help him, had already switched sides to the Taliban. So they've been very, very smart. They have had media teams travelling with them, filming them, not killing their prisoners, not looting, trying to enforce law and order. And as a result, we have had so far, a surprisingly peaceful transition of power, to the extent, for instance, that the the former head of security at the presidential palace in Kabul didn't fight to the last man to stop the Taliban coming into the presidential palace. They literally had a handover ceremony on television where the Taliban were given the keys to the presidential palace. And then you saw that remarkable, I think, almost iconic image of them all sitting around the president's desk, many of them still with their weapons in their hands. So this is the Taliban today, but of course it is the day after that we have to worry about and have to think about. And once they've consolidated their grip on power, will they allow girls to go to school? Will they start rounding up their enemies and killing them? Will they kick international organisations out of Afghanistan? I I think they may have learned the lessons of the past 20 years, and we may be uh, slightly surprised by how accommodating they might be to international opinion and to the new generation of Afghans who have, who have grown up in, in a free, culturally and politically, in a free Kabul and in a free Af- Afghanistan. Of course, this is just guesswork. Maybe they have lists of enemies. Maybe once they have their grip on power, we will see medieval ways of doing things coming back. And one slight indicator of that, there's no more music playing on Afghan television anymore. It's, uh, it's much more sober programming. So we'll have to wait and see. Freddie, Paul writes that removing the troops has long been President Biden's settled wish. You also write about Biden in this week's issue in the political column. What do you make of that? Well, I think just just before we move on to Biden, I'd like to say I, I agree completely with what Paul's saying. But I wondered whether we have another interesting piece in the magazine this week by Alistair Crook about the sort of greater game that's going on among the Taliban. And the, the, even though they've become a more sophisticated operation, the level of sophistication suggests... Uh, quite an active role of outside regional powers. So the obvious ones are China, Russia, and Pakistan. And I wonder, you know, to what extent has America removed itself from this process deliberately? To what extent has Joe Biden deliberately removed himself and allowed uh, Russia and, 
and China to sort of dictate the new order in Afghanistan? And to what extent did he just not really realise what uh, was going on as he was withdrawing from Afghanistan? I think that's the really interesting question to ask. And well, he says he has, and certainly, I mean, if you sort of, there's a sort of myth, I'd say, that's built up around Vice President Biden, that particularly on Afghanistan, he was always the voice saying, uh, let's bring them home, let's bring them home, and Obama was more in favour of surges. I think that's a little bit disingenuous, because if you look at Biden's record, he has said everything. He's been pro the surge, he's been anti the surge. Uh, he's been pro nation building, he's been anti nation building. So I think it's hard to try and judge any consistency in Biden as a career politician. However, I think it's certainly true that he now senses that uh, the national mood, the political mood, is very much against wars abroad, and he's, he's bet the house on that. Paul, you say in your piece that nation building was always going to be hard or even futile, but we didn't help ourselves. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, there's a question here. Uh, was it that we just botched Afghanistan and it could have been done better? Or was it always going to be impossible? If you define success as turning Afghanistan into a, a sort of, you know, European, Scandinavian, almost liberal democracy, then yes, it was impossible. President Biden could probably have just kept things going with a relatively small number of troops. There were about 3,000 there, including special forces and more people were killed in training accidents in the US than in combat in Afghanistan as far as American forces uh, went last year. He could have kept that going and a lot of people think he should. All the big investment in lives and in money had been made over the past 20 years. At the peak of the Afghan war there were 140,000 American troops. I tend to think, um, having been in a lot of villages uh, and, and seen people essentially preferring the Taliban, the Taliban are of Afghanistan, they're not imposed from outside, that remaking Afghanistan in our image is and was was always going to be something futile. And that's the side that President Biden came down on. Uh, your question about great powers, I think, was the right one now, because retreat is always the most difficult military manoeuvre. And if Biden had made a, what I think we may eventually come to see as a reasonable decision to get out of Afghanistan, he certainly botched the means of getting out. When the Soviet Union left, they left quickly, but it, it took three years for the Taliban, Mark I, the Islamist insurgents backed by the West, to take over. Uh, it, it, all of this happened in a weekend, this humiliating scramble to get out. And the, the blow to American credibility and American prestige is, is huge. Who are the winners of this? Well, Pakistan, as you said, they sponsored the Taliban for years, despite getting billions in American aid. They were sponsoring the people, training them, arming them, running them, sometimes disagreeing with them, but essentially in partnership with them, in partnership with the people who were killing American soldiers. The Chinese and the Russians, I think, are just too smart to take on Afghanistan in the way the US did. If you read some of the commentary coming out of China, they're very aware of the mistakes that the British did. There are a lot of references to that. The Soviets made, the Americans made. They've got commercial interest there, but I don't think you're going to see some attempt at nation building. It will be an accommodation with the Taliban. Fred, you, you say in your poll call that Biden's absorbed a key political lesson of the Trump years. What exactly are you referring to there? Well, it's that people, voters, like the media less than they like even their elected leaders, who they actually also despise. And I, it, the, the lesson I think that Trump proved over and over again is that if you can trigger America's corporate media, if you like to call it corporate media, 
into a kind of fit of apoplexy, then you can actually improve your standing. And while it's true that the polls suggest initially that Biden has cocked this up, he seems to have botched it, Americans are embarrassed, his job approval rating is going down, the sheer sort of level of abuse that he's getting means that quite a lot of Americans, I think, will be starting to think, actually, perhaps he's right. Perhaps these very pompous journalists who are talking about moral duty and so on and red lines are out of touch and um, wrong. And what do you think we can see, what, what do you think rather we can expect from Biden's foreign policy in the coming years towards the Middle East? I suppose it'd be very interesting to see how Biden and the foreign policy establishment in Washington interact in the coming days. He's definitely offended them. He's upset their worldview um, with his insistence that America should withdraw from Afghanistan. I suppose the question is, will they forgive him and can he offer them something else? Can he offer them something else on China or Russia that they would agree with in order to sort of smooth the hurt feelings of the the foreign policy elite in Washington? Paul, just finally, your piece touches on various times you've been in Afghanistan and you you obviously know people out there. Have you been able to speak to any of them recently? And what have you been hearing? Well, I spoke to people... Uh, over the past few days in a terrible panic to get out of Kabul, both foreigners and Afghans, people trying to get passports and get passports stamped. An absolute nightmare, as you can imagine. And part of the problem is that the United States took over the airport and essentially cancelled civilian air traffic. So people were turning up for flights, finding the Taliban not in charge of the airport because the Americans were there, but everybody else having left, no security, no checking procedures. And then when you get to the end of it, no flight. I think there was a peak of panic on Monday, which has subsided slightly. And people are, uh, as I said, waiting to see what is the true character of this new Taliban government. Are they going to get tougher and tougher and remove more and more freedoms as they consolidate their grip on power? And we will just have to wait and see for that. I think the question that most Afghans want to answer is, is this the end of war for our country? They've been in in decades of war. Before 9-11, there was a long period of war broken only by a brutally repressive Taliban government. And that depends on two further questions. One is, will there be some kind of internal resistance? Some people have retreated to the Panjshir Valley and are talking about carrying on the fight. I think that's unlikely. There's no support for that. People are exhausted. But the other question is, will the Taliban allow al-Qaeda, other jihadist groups, to set up their operations once again in Afghanistan? And will, will that invite some kind of international response? Well, the Taliban spokesman, told me in a conversation earlier this year that they absolutely promised never again would Afghanistan be a threat to the outside world. They wanted peace for the outside world. Again, we'll have to wait and see. It seems that al-Qaeda is there. The extent to which they're under the control of the Taliban, we simply don't know. And that's obviously a crucial question for President Biden as well. And Fred, just fine. Does it sort of seem now we're slightly reliant on China to keep tabs on what's going on in Afghanistan? Well, I think every every American I talk to about this says, uh, well, if China wants to get involved in that region, then good luck to them. You know, and, and that if China wants to protect its border with, with Afghanistan to, to try and control Afghanistan from the other side, they're going to find it very, very difficult. I think it's just an inevitable consequence of the, the decline of the, the unipolar moment that regional powers like China, like Russia, like Pakistan will become involved in the sort of the politics of Afghanistan. And I think the closer you are to Afghanistan, the more likely you are not to completely mess it up. 
so maybe that's not such a bad thing. Thank you, Paul, and thank you, Freddie. Next up, in this week's issue, I write a column about the COVID jab and the effect it had on my period. And I'm not the only one. There have now been 30,000 reports made by British women who've experienced changes to their periods after the jab. To continue the conversation, I'm joined now by Jessica Braun, who was the host of the Periodical podcast, and Dr Joe Mountfield from the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. Dr Mountfield, I discussed in my piece this week my own experience of the COVID jab seeming to have an effect on my period. Is this something that you've been hearing of happening to lots of women? Yes, there's definitely been um, a number of women who've reported changes in their menstrual period. And in fact, if you read the latest national uh, reports, as you know, uh, the MHRA um, are our national reporting system here in the UK. So that uh, if you've had a COVID vaccination and you have some untoward side effects, you can report those into this uh, system either as a, uh, as a professional and there have been indeed 30,000 reports of uh, women uh, saying that their periods had changed as a consequence of uh, having uh, the COVID uh, vaccination. So you're certainly not alone in having some changes in menstrual uh, period that have coincided with having uh, a vaccination. And is there anything to be concerned about? No, um, I think um, what this uh, the data is telling us, and as I say, the, the MRHA very helpfully have just had a look at this data and uh, looked at it in the context of uh, the, the sort of millions of people who've had a vaccination and said that actually the reporting of uh, this as a, a potential uh, consequence of having a COVID uh, vaccination seems to be that probably the changes that are happening for many women are just happen to be coincidental with them having the COVID vaccination and that there doesn't seem to be any good evidence that um, the actual vaccination itself causes changes um, in menstrual pattern because if it was a, a, a causation there should be far far larger numbers of women reporting this uh, as a consequence and I think the other bit to say and we can talk about this you know, more um, if you want to, is there are obviously lots of reasons why women have changes in their menstrual periods. And it's a, it's a very common uh, occurrence for all sorts of um, reasons, stress being one of them, but lots of other reasons. And so um, it's inevitable that with the millions of vaccinations that are being given at present, that some of those will coincide with changes in, in periods, basically. So it's not at all, it's not, not a surprise to anybody that people are reporting this. I think what's been reassuring is that the data supports that it, doesn't, it hasn't caused a tsunami of women having lots of problems with their uh, periods, which you would have thought if it had been as a consequence of uh, the vaccination. If that make, does that make sense? Sure, no, that does make sense. I, mean, I, mean, I suppose one of the points that I'm making in the piece is that whilst at the moment... It's very sort of fashionable to talk about periods and there are lots of books written about the subject. What I've noticed, and I've sort of felt this as well, is that lots of people are telling me behind the scenes that they've had changes to their period, but they haven't reported it. And and I was sort of in that case and I only reported it when I was then asked at my second jab if there had been any yeah. anything changing. And I, I almost felt a bit sort of silly. I felt like it was such a kind of trivial thing, really. But it was only then when I sort of saw the 30,000 number, I thought, gosh, actually there are sort of more than I sort of thought there would be. Jessica, I mean, do you, you're based in Utah. Is this, is this a sort of similar thing to what's going on in America with the COVID jabs and women's periods? Yeah, so, and I think in, the, in your article, you mentioned some research that's actually being done here. We have about 140,000 cases of women reporting this issue. And um, I know that you, I guess like the, 
the study that you source that is Kate Clancy's work at the University of Illinois, who's an anthropologist, she's looking into this. And, you know, while periods are, you know, adaptive, that is the good news for people who bleed. The menstrual cycle is flexible with our lives. And I think for that reason, this is probably why less people are coming forward, right? Like if you have a certain diet that's different one month from the next or you have more stress in one area of your life, you might have a different period and getting the vaccine could also, you know, be part of that. So I think for that reason, a lot of people aren't coming forward and talking about it. And, you know, like you mentioned, the stigma about periods in general is something where women are not always comfortable talking about it. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Mountford, do you, do you think if more women come forward and the numbers do grow, that then there could be cause for concern? Or do you think that it's just one of those things that the jab is, is maybe having an effect, but it's, it doesn't actually really matter in terms of kind of our fertility and I think this, aspect of it. it's really difficult to come up with a, a plausible, plausible biological mechanism by which the vaccine itself could be affecting fertility or affecting periods. Uh, that's the challenge, really, when you when we are looking at this this sort of uh, data as well. And I think it would need many, 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 many more uh, women to be uh, reporting these sorts of um, issues before you could start saying, "Is there really a causation here?" Now. You know, it, because periods are, as you know, the, your, your, our previous uh, speaker just very eloquently uh, said, you know, there's so many things that can influence uh, timing of uh, menstruation. Stress is, a, uh, is, of course, one. If you're actually unwell, that, again, can affect your periods. If you lose uh, weight, if you put on weight, uh, there are lots and lots of reasons why uh, people's periods can be irregular. And there can be some underlying issues. So it's not to negate changes in period and certainly you know as a health professional I would say look if you've got consistent changes in your periods or you have untoward bleeding that you don't normally have or they're extremely you've got extremely heavy periods or all that's not to say please ignore them and just pretend it's not happening no you need to seek you need to absolutely seek medical advice but some of these transient changes and most of the changes are reported are transient changes I think are probably just coincidental rather than being causative um, I, I suppose the, the other, the final thing I'd add to that is, you know, some people do get a, a reaction to the um, vaccination. They get a mild fever. They don't feel very well. They feel lethargic. And those are very well documented side effects as, again. And again, that could have some impact on your menstrual cycle. So, you know, there are there is some underlying reasoning behind, you know, what's going on in this situation. And as I say, I wouldn't want to stop women feeling concerned or reporting any concerns about their periods. I also talk in the piece about pregnant women and the vaccine. Uh, What at the moment is the current advice from the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists to women who are considering having the vaccine? We're strongly recommending having the vaccine now. And I know this has been a a challenge um, over the last few months because we went from a situation at the beginning of the year where it wasn't um, recommended because we didn't have enough data to a few months later where the JCVI said, yes, please consider having this now. We've got more data, more reassuring data to now a situation where because we've got much improved data, about the vaccine and uh, its potential effects, side effects, etc., that we now uh, have moved to a situation where we're strongly recommending uh, women consider having the vaccination. And I certainly, every consultation I have with every pregnant woman I, I see, I talk about it now. And why is that? 
where we know really clearly that although still the, the majority of women who get COVID in pregnancy will have a mild or a moderate uh, illness, flu-like illness, and will not be serious and well, a proportion will become seriously unwell. And of those that are admitted, and at the moment here in the UK, those uh, numbers are still going up. And we've seen a number of really seriously ill, poorly women in my own unit over the last uh, few weeks. And you can, uh, one in, of the women that are in, uh, admitted to hospital, about one in 10 of those will end up in an intensive care unit. And you uh, significantly increase the risk of premature birth as a consequence of that for your baby as well. So the potential downsides of getting COVID and getting seriously unwell are quite large, whereas the reassuring safety data we now have about the vaccination 200,000 women, data from 200,000 women, no major safety concerns, again, is really reassuring for women about, you know, when they're considering the pros and cons of uh, vaccination. Jessica, one of, one of the points that I make in the piece is I actually felt quite nervous writing this piece for two reasons, really. One is obviously writing about my period in The Spectator's not something I usually do. And also I felt quite nervous about being accused of being anti-vax, even though I'd obviously had both vaccines. I'm very, very pro-vaccines. And I, I think it's striking that lots of women seem to be saying similar things to me, that they're very pro the vaccines, but and they've noticed changes to their period. They've kind of preferred not to talk about them because they're worried about how it might come across. Do you think women are a bit nervous about talking about the effects that the vaccine might be having on their periods because they're worried about being accused of being anti-vax? Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, there are concerns or risks whether you get the vaccine and whether you don't get the vaccine. I mean, there is overwhelming data, you know, supporting that it is beneficial to get the vaccine to save lives and, you know, to help yourself. But needless to say, like, I think that if this is just a symptom, this disruptance in a menstrual cycle is part of the vaccine, that is something that, you know, the government should let people know up front. If you know you're going to have a headache and a sore arm, the government needs to let people know or the medical community, you know, you may also have a disruptance in your menstrual cycle. And not only that, but I think that because this is kind of coming at a surprise for people and like you mentioned, coming across as some sort of anti-vaxxer makes you out to be the bad guy in this situation. It's difficult for people to come forward and talk about this. But, you know, it's this is not black and white. This is like a very gray, nuanced issue. And it's important to have these conversations and, you know, the truth be told, yes, this vaccine is important, it's saving lives, but it was rushed to get it out to people. And more often than not, periods are not always thought of. And this could be something that happens to be the repercussion from decades, if not centuries, of a crucial reproductive function being forgotten and or dismissed because of a stigma. And just finally, Dr. Mountford, one of the other points that I note in the piece is that women aged between 16 to 29 are one of the groups who are actually most likely to refuse the jab. And I imagine that some of these worries are feeding into that. What would your advice be to those women who are perhaps concerned about the jab affecting their period? So I would say to them that the evidence we've got is that if they, if um, their periods are changing, it's transitory. It, this is not something that is going to carry on for months and months and months after they've had the period. If that happens at the same time, it is likely, as I say, in many cases uh, to be uh, coincidental. We don't have firm evidence as to why the vaccine should cause changes in your periods. There certainly is no, as again, it's the, it's the lack of plausible biological mechanisms as to 
why your fertility can be affected. And I think this was a, a myth that was propagated early on in the stages of the vaccine uh, rollout and appeared on social media again and again. And I do know there are a lot of young women that are concerned, and quite rightly, we, of course, people uh, one who are uh, younger are considering having children later on in life and don't want to, to do anything to put themselves at risk. And of course, for many younger people, the risks of actually having COVID are not as great. In, for many young people, they're doing this for the wide good rather than for their own personal protection. But I think I can be really reassuring that, you know, I don't think your piece is anti-vax. I don't think you're anti-vax. I think expressing some concerns and airing what's happened to you is absolutely perfectly legitimate and valid. But equally, from my perspective as a, a medical professional and looking at the evidence that we've got, we can be really reassuring about this. And for the vast, vast, vast majority of people, they're not going to get any significant side effects. It will protect them and it will protect the wider community, which, after all is really important, especially if they themselves are wanting to get pregnant and, and then have the higher risks that go along with um, pregnancy as well. So um, yeah, look at the evidence, um, talk to somebody about it, look at the college website. We've got really, really good information on the college and our college website and do trust the professionals on this. We are really doing our best to try and help reassure people and provide all the evidence that we can as soon as we can, recognising that this was as Jessica's already said, you know, it's a faster, been a fast rollout, but the data that we're getting is really reassuring. Jessica and Dr. Mountfield, thank you very much for joining. And finally, while many people fled London for greener pastures during the pandemic, our own Martin Vanderwehr has moved back to the city after 30 years of Yorkshire living. He's now living in Covent Garden and says he couldn't be happier. He joins me now along with William Moore, who has done the opposite. He left London with his young family to become a country gent. Martin, at what point did you realise you wanted to be back in the big city? Well, it, it's certainly a, a lockdown effect, but I think it was something that was in the back of my mind for quite a long time, really. So I've had kind of 30, 32 very happy years living in a, a country house, but on the edge of a of a charming small town, a town of 2,000 people, very historic town in Yorkshire on the edge of the North York Moors. Idyllic, really, it couldn't be nicer. And I've had a very happy time here and been a very active citizen. But as I've said in the piece in, in this week's issue, I think perhaps all along there was an element of me that was really a kind of urban creature, a kind of Burlington Bertie, you know, waiting to break out again. I lived in London happily in my 20s. I then lived in several quite exciting foreign cities in my late 20s and through to my mid-30s. And I I loved all that, really. So an urge was building up. And then I think the first long lockdown last year made me think, well, let's get on with it. Let's see if I can find a home in London. So that's what I did. And tell us about your new living conditions. <laughs> well, I started looking in various parts of London and I was looking around. I thought I want something with kind of, I don't know, green space. That's what I really want. And um, then I couldn't find the right place. And then I happened to be having morning coffee with a friend of mine and said I thought I might look at Covent Garden and she said oh my uncle's selling a flat in Covent Garden 
So I said, let's find that on right move. So we did. And I thought, my goodness, that looks good. So I went to see it. And as you do, or I don't know how you do it, but how I do it, all the properties I've ever bought, I've looked at for about two minutes and thought, <laughs> yeah, that's it. And even the estate agent, who was desperately keen to sell this place, said to me, hang on, you'd spend more time buying a pair of shoes than that. <laughs> I said, I said, don't worry, you know, it's fine. I know, I know when, I, when I've seen the right place. And, you know, my house in Yorkshire, I probably spent less than two minutes before I decided to bid for it. So that's how it was. And, and uh, anyway, I describe in the piece, it's in, a, it's in a cobbled street in Seven Dials. It's on a first floor. It's a Georgian, I suppose, commercial building uh, converted into flats about 40 years ago. And it's just very nice. And, and um, you know, you kind of buy the district as well as the, the living space. It's it's a most interesting, sophisticated corner of London, which I knew a bit, but I now know much better. And the more I'm there, the more, more I like it, the more I discover. Well, you have done the opposite of Martin. Or actually, I, I suppose you did, you've done what Martin did earlier in his life. You've moved from London to the countryside what do you make of Martin's decision? Well, Martin, um, with the utmost respect, I, I think you're mad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, reading your description of your grade two listed Regency house, um, you know, with your view over your neighbor's Ionic temple, I mean, it sounds idyllic. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why you would uh, want, to, want to head back to, to London after, after that. Um, I mean, it just sounds, just sounds magical, really. And uh, I mean, your new place in, in, in Seven Dials sounds extremely nice as well. But compared to what this beautiful sounding life that you had in North Yorkshire, I, I, I think you're, you're balmy, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, and of course, almost everyone said that to me, but I just didn't feel that it was a mad thing to do. 32 years is a long time in a house. I have not exhausted, but explored every possibility of use of the house. It has, because it was built as a school, uh, it had an unusually large drawing room, living room. So for years, it's been our amateur dramatics rehearsal studio, for example, and I've had little concerts in there and all sorts of things. So it's rather an amazing place to be. But what I found was when I emptied it of furniture and stripped it back to the bare house that I arrived in in 1989 it was exactly like taking the set down for a play for a show the set had come down I was going to put the set up again in my new home and I didn't feel a great wave of emotion about the house on the other hand the view you describe which is a rather unusually lovely kind of classical landscape view across somebody else's stately parkland and the garden which was having a very very fine summer this year, I do feel sad to leave those behind. So I, I kind of compensated by for that by spending the whole of June and July having parties and lunches and suppers in the garden to get the maximum value out of it. But I think you just know when you want to move on. And when thir- so thirty some years ago, I was, and you're, I'm probably thirty years older than you, and maybe a bit more. I, I felt exactly like you. What I wanted to do, having had a very urban. 1980s uh, London and abroad 
was I wanted a home in in the country. I wanted the space and the greenery, and I wanted myself to sort of become a country gentleman, you know. But I've kind of got over it now. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, I'm I'm not over it at all. That's exactly the life uh, I want, particularly at this stage in my life. I've got I've got two young children, uh, one three year old, one one and a half year old, and they're having the space. I mean, you mentioned it. Um, at the start that you were looking for somewhere in London with green space but in my mind uh, nowadays that's that's pretty hard to come by in in London if you if you want uh, space particularly green space uh, for someone like me who wants to raise a family I mean the, the countryside is sort of the um, the best option compared to what there what there is in London I mean to give to give you, you some indication of my situation before I moved out to the country I was living in rented accommodation in often very very small uh, one-bedroom flats Often they'd be converted from sort of Georgian houses into several flats, and and that often can be quite charming. But I also think that, that sometimes has its own set of problems. I mean, when I lived with my wife in Chiswick before we had children, in a very small sort of one-bedroom flat beneath a neighbour, it's unbelievably creaky and and loud and sort of stompy McStomperson upstairs stomping away all day and all night. It seemed, and I had a such an unpleasant experience renting a, a one-bedroom, sorry, two-bedroom, in that case, we had a flatmate, um, a two-bedroom place in, in a Clapham that was so horrible, I almost can't go into it. But, uh, but anyway, the, the, my point is, is that these scenarios, when my wife and I came to the point where we wanted to raise a family, I mean, they're just not places where I think that would even be realistic. No, no, well, I, I'm clearly not in the stage of raising a family. In fact, never have been. And it's probably fairly unlikely that I'm going to enter into that stage now, but you never know. I am simply looking at, you know, what's suitable as a sort of, for bachelor life, which happens to suit me. The funny thing is, actually, one of the things that prompted me was for the past year, in a rather notional way, I've been an academic visitor at an Oxford college. And when I was offered that appointment, I rushed to Oxford and rented a basement flat near the college where there were a lot of students upstairs thumping around and so on. So I've had a bit of that experience. But actually, funnily enough, what that did was persuade me that living in smaller spaces was not only okay, but it was actually rather a pleasant change from living in a very big space. I mean, my old house fitted me like an old overcoat, but it was a very big space. Now I've got two smaller spaces, one in London and one I've kept in Yorkshire, and I'm finding that that very satisfactory. But in terms of the neighbours in the new London place, there's it's a very solidly built place. There's really no noise at all from the neighbours, some of whom just don't seem to be there very much. And there isn't even any traffic noise because Camden Council has turned the whole street into a cafe, which which... Just as I arrived, the neighbours were absolutely enraged about it, but now it's happened. I can't speak for all of them, but I think on the whole, everyone thinks it's really quite fun. And it's much nicer than having cars and taxis going past your house all the time. And Martin, just finally, what, what have you noticed that's changed about London? And I mean, have you, got, have you still got lots of friends who are living in London who you're kind of reconnecting with after all these years? Uh, yes, I have. And that's a, a special pleasure, actually, because not many of them live as centrally as I now do, but they all like to come into the centre of London. So I've had lots and lots of people coming to see me, which is, which is nice. 
what's changed since I last lived in... Well, I last had a home of my own in London in 1992 in South Kensington. <laughs> what's changed is the traffic on the main thoroughfares is, is I don't know, five or ten times worse than I remember. I lived in Tokyo in the mid-80s when Tokyo was thought to have the worst traffic problems in the world. And I would say London is now worse than than Tokyo in the in the mid-80s. But partly because the mayor, Sadiq Khan, as, or someone, has authorised so many roadworks and so on, once you're off the main thoroughfares, there are now so many street cafes, a lot of people are just walking. So actually the pedestrian life, the street life, is much livelier than it was a generation ago. But the main through routes are completely clogged up. It's partly to do with Boris and his cycle lanes, isn't it? And his buses and all that. But anyway, driving, if the rare occasions I've had to try and drive to my flat to deliver stuff, I can take an hour from the Marylebone Road to Seven Dials and you arrive having a sort of nervous breakdown. So that that's really what's changed. But the cosmopolitanism, I think, was always there, but the, perhaps more so than before. We're missing the tourists this summer, aren't we? But even so, it seems just extraordinarily cosmopolitan. Well, is there anything you think that could convince you to move back to London or can you imagine yourself moving back to London at some stage in your life? A lottery um, you know, win, perhaps. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lottery ticket would be good. Um, you know, to be quite a mansion honest, in Belgravia, for your <laughs> To be quite honest, no. I mean, I, I, I do love London, but I also live, unlike living in, in Yorkshire, I live within a pr- pretty relatively uh, quick train journey to London. So I ha- in a way, I feel like I got the best of both worlds. I got green space out in a nice, quite small rural village and then I go into work on the train and then I come back at the end of the day and get to take a big breath of country air as I step off the train which um, I do think is, is, a, is pretty ideal unless I had that lottery ticket and could afford an unbelievably nice unaffordably nice house with a lot of green space I, I, I don't think I, I don't think I will Martin and William thank you for joining and that's it for the edition this week if you've enjoyed what you heard and want to know more about the stories we touched on, do subscribe to the magazine for a more in-depth dive. And of course, please do leave a review and star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. I'm Laura Prendergast and I hope you have a brilliant weekend. <laughs>